1 Timothy chapter 4. Speaking of people that you might uh, recognize, there's a distinguished Harvard surgeon and author by the name of Atul Gawande. And some of you may have come across some of his work. If you're in the medical field, you may have actually heard of this guy or read something that he wrote. Uh, He is writing about some of his experiences. And after working for about eight years as a surgeon, he made an observation that he had actually kind of plateaued as a surgeon. He was, he kind of felt like, hit a certain level of operating room success. He had reached a plateau, and after he came to this realization, certainly after that, shortly after that, he was attending uh, a meeting with a bunch of other doctors. They had the afternoon off, and uh, he was trying to find another doctor to play some tennis with him because, you know, he got the afternoon off, but he couldn't find anybody, so he ends up just going to the local club in the city that they were at, shows up there and says, you know, I just like to kind of hit a few balls and stuff. And they informed him, like, well, that'll all be fine, but you have to pay for a lesson, and you'll have to do it with our local pro. And he's like, oh, okay, that is the only way that I can actually hit some balls. I, yeah, so he pays for this lesson, and out comes this kid fresh out of college. Uh, he had played on his uh, college tennis team, and so they start kind of hitting some balls back and forth. And he said, you know, this, this kid was easy on me at first, but then he had me kind of running around everywhere. And he says, well, then I'm going to use my very best on him. He actually felt like his, his serve was where it was at. And so he nailed some of his top serves on this guy. And the, the coach started coming out of this kid. And he goes, you know, uh, you know, you could be a lot better than you are. And he was kind of, ta- what are you talking about? You know, like my stroke is my very best part of my game. He's like, he started pointing out how his right foot was trailing. He says, you're, both of your feet are underneath your body when you actually are serving. You know, if we kind of, he starts tweaking his, his serve a little bit and moving him over here. He says in several minutes, the guy added about 10 miles an hour onto his serve and couldn't believe just how much, how much he could learn in just a few minutes when someone else was observing him and critiquing him, showing him where he's doing it right and where he can improve. And he argues that Every single person needs a coach. So he took this experience. He had this. He was watching tennis. Uh, he was watching a guy by the name of Rafael Nadal. I'm sure you've heard of him. And he was watching, and all of a sudden the camera kind of panned over to his coach. And it hit him that even the top pros have coaches that keep them at the very top of their game and actually help them continue to get better. And he started to think that hey, what would keep me from doing this in the operating room? If, if professional tennis players have coaches that keep them on the top of their game, what would keep me from hiring someone to keep me at the top of my game as a surgeon? And he actually writes this, coaching operates from the premises that no matter how well prepared people are in their formative years, few can achieve and maintain their best performance on their own. And I want to take that information and tell you, that's exactly what Paul is doing when you come to 1 Timothy chapter 4. He is helping Timothy to not only see where he's at, but how he can grow and mature and be everything that God intended him to be. And this passage we're looking at is so very important because really it answers a fundamental question that every spiritual leader has. And that is, what does spiritual leadership truly look like? If you're a parent or you lead a Bible study, you're involved in some sort of ministry, Um, you're involved, uh, maybe you're a a professor, maybe you're a teacher of some sort, perhaps you're a pastor. What does true Christian leadership look like? 
But you're not going to do any better when, than when you come to 1 Timothy chapter 4 because he kind of lays it all out there. We've actually spent several weeks on there. We're going to finish this chapter up. But he highlights five traits of true Christian leadership. And I want you to know this, that who you follow will basically determine how you lead. Who it is you set your sights on, whether it is yourself and your own prestige, or if it's Jesus Christ, is going to largely shape how you lead. So let me just kind of, as we kind of work through this, let's look at the five traits of true Christian leadership. And these first two we've actually covered in some pretty great length here in the previous weeks here. But it all begins with Jesus. So look at verse 10. He says, For it is, this perf- it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Fundamental to being truly a true Christian leader is that you and I have to learn how to focus on Jesus as we go through our days. And notice some of the terms he used. He says, labor and strive. Anytime you are actively engaged, whether you're a parent or a small group leader or a pastor or an elder or a professor or a teacher or wherever else you have some sort of influence as you disciple another individual, you need to know that it's going to be hard work at times. And that's why he uses terms like labor and strive. It's literally agonizomize, agonize, because you're going to have to apply yourself. The Christian ministry calls for effort. It's, it's not for the faint of heart or those who quickly and easily give up. And so he says, we fix our hope on the living God. We fix our hope on Jesus. And if you're going to be a Christian leader, you have to always remember that he is with you. In different times, that, even just this past week, where I'm stepping into settings like, man, this is going to require a lot out of me and more than I've got. I, I, I just remind myself, that it is Jesus who does his work in my midst. In fact, he's the one who's doing the work. And so I look to him and I ask him because I need him and I am focused on him. If you're involved in ministry, what is the goal? The goal is that your child or your, the person you're discipling or your small group will actually become like Jesus. They'll become fully mature. And so you give yourself to it, but you do so with the focus that he's your hope. He's the hope for salvation. If you're talking to someone who doesn't know Christ, there's one hope for him. It's Jesus. If you are helping someone grow and mature, if you're ministering to them, there's but one who does the work, and it's Jesus. So if you're going to be a Christian leader, you never want to forget verse 10. You want to always focus on Jesus. In fact, Paul goes on to say in verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. You keep coming back after this, help people learn to fix and focus on Jesus. You know, if you're facing some difficulties, by the way, like you got things aren't so well at home or in your work situation, those, those difficult circumstances have a way of getting you focused strip, simply on a horizontal level where you, you almost forget that God is in the mix. And so if you're going to be a Christian leader, you learn to continually focus on Jesus. You keep Christ at the center. Now, the next characteristic, the next trait of a, of a true Christian leader is found in verse 12, and that is that you are leading by example. The single greatest tool 
of leadership is by leading by example. It's not being eloquent or having, being a good communicator. Those things are helpful. The greatest tool that you have if you're a leader is being an example. In fact, we spent all last week looking at this one key verse. He says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. If you're young, you've got to earn respect. But Paul says, let me tell you how that's done. Don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, you know, what you say, what comes out of your mouth, your common speech, how you handle yourself with your words, because whatever is in your heart, Jesus says, comes out your mouth. So he says, in your speech, in your conduct, that has the idea of your behavior, show yourself, he says, in your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. In your love, how you not only have a love for God, but that you actually have a sacrificial love for others, you show what it looks like to believe, and you give an example, and you do so with your love. Or your faith, that you truly believe that that Jesus is the only Savior, that he's the true Lord of your life, and that you've got a faith in him that renews you. He says, you show the world an example of what it looks like to believe. And you do so through your love, your faith, and here's the final one he gives, is your purity. How you handle yourself. It speaks of not only how you handle yourself in terms of your body, but even your mind. Show yourself an example of those who believe. If you're going to be a Christian leader, people are looking for an example. What does that really look like to follow Jesus? If you read the New Testament, it's really interesting how much emphasis the New Testament writers give to being an example. It all gets started with Jesus. Remember in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, I want you to take my yoke upon you and I want you to learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, you follow me. Learn from me. I am showing you what it looks like to truly know the Father. Follow my example. Or Paul in Philippians 3.17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Follow my pattern. Follow my example. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1.16, in this very letter that we've been studying, Paul says, I am an example of God's work. In fact, he says, I'm an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. If you are a Christian leader, if you are an elder, Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, you are to show yourself an example to the flock. If you are going to be a leader, you have to be an example. And we expect that, right? I was uh, reading and I came across this, uh, this is kind of an interesting little deal. Who I don't know who would have ever even thought of this, but in 1993... Uh, they were recounting some events that took place at the annual American Heart Association where they had their annual meeting. And so they had this annual meeting. They had 300,000 doctors, nurses, researchers. They all gathered in Atlanta, and they were talking about matters of the heart, which include uh, the importance of a low-fat diet and how that plays into keeping a healthy heart. That's all really good, and we want the American Health Association to do just that, right? Now, this is what was very interesting. They found that during all the meals that were being served there at the convention center, that there was really no change between other conferences they've had 
And these folks that were gathered, these 300,000 doctors, researchers, nurses, in terms of the fat-filled fast food content that they were eating. For instance, you're saying these doctors and nurses that were here studying and talking about the importance of a healthy diet consumed just as many, you know, bacon cheeseburgers and water burger stuff as everybody else. And, and you're like, really? In fact, it was interesting because they actually asked one of these cardiologists if his, whether or not his partaking in high-fat meals set a bad example. Listen to this reply. He apparently, he said, no, not me, because I took my name tag off, okay? Now, we want a little higher level of logic with our heart doctors, right? Okay? If you're answering questions like that, you're probably not going to be cutting on me, okay? But because, now, listen, if you're a cardiologist here, you're a doctor, you're entitled to a 3,000-calorie lunch, okay, just like the rest of us. The point of the matter is, though, that we expect those who are the authorities and are actually saying this is what you should be doing to actually do it. It's called credibility. You don't tell people, you better stop smoking, it's really bad for your health, and you yourself are a smoker, right? You don't, it goes, in, whether it deals with food or it deals with exercise, but let me, let me tell you where you can't compromise. That is when we say we're following Jesus and we're trying to lead others in the same pursuit of maturity in Christ, but that's actually not a reality in us. We've gotten to a place where we're kind of cruising and we're not taking Christ seriously. What he says is, you show yourself an example. You keep Christ at the center and you let your life speak. We are to model the message of maturity. Let me give you a third characteristic of true Christian leadership. And the third one is, you'll find it here in verse 13, and that is you were establishing believers in the truth. What do Christian leaders do? You just get all dressed up. You just show up at different places. You get treated like a rock star or celebrity. What, no, what does true Christian leadership, what do they do? Well, he tells, Paul is counseling Timothy, and he says this, until I come, this is what I want you to do. I want you to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. I want, to, I want you to make sure that you do this, that you ground your people in the Word of God. And so he says, give attention to the, and it literally says, the reading. Now, what he's talking about there is the reading of Scripture. This, is, this has always been a part of Christian worship. In fact, it has its origins all the way back to when the, the Israelites were coming out of Babylon, and they actually established synagogues. And in their worship service, they always read from the law and the prophets. And they were, that was always a part of their worship. They actually read the scriptures. And this was then carried over into the Christian tradition where the scriptures are read. And so I want you, he says, to make sure that you are reading the scripture. Not only are you personally reading it for your own benefit, but you are having it read to the people in the church. You read the scripture. And this was needed because, first of all, there were not very many manuscripts. Okay, so, you know, you and I, we own like what? Three, four, five, how many Bibles do you have in your house, right? Probably you have more Bibles than you've read it through, right? Isn't that kind of how it works? Okay, they didn't have that. In fact, until the printing press really gets kicked off, the idea of having a personal copy of the scriptures, 
no one, unless you were extremely wealthy, had that. So you didn't have a copy. Furthermore, you had a high degree of people that were illiterate. In fact, the estimates for the people around Ephesus that only 1% of them could read. So if you can't read, that's going to be pretty difficult to actually have a manuscript put in front of you. And so the practice was to read and keep reading. And so they would read from the Law and Prophets, Law and the Prophets in the synagogue. And then after people started placing their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, they then started adding the letters that were written by the apostles. And they started being read in the church service. So that's what he's saying. I want you to make sure that you are reading the scripture and then you're giving exhortation and teaching. Literally, the idea has that you encourage, that you show how this truth applies to your life. The idea of a sermon has all of its origins all the way back to the synagogue practices where they would actually read the scriptures and then someone would stand up who had studied. He's not just winging it, but actually knew them well enough to explain what they mean and how they apply. That's what Timothy is doing. In fact, that's what churches are to be doing. You read the word and you explain how this applies to your life. You, you give warning, you give rebuke, you give encouragement, you show how the word comforts. But that is the practice. He says, I want you to be exhorting and teaching. So if you want to see what this looks like in the New Testament, you come to the book of Acts and you got Paul and Barnabas there on their first missionary journey. Their practice was to show up in synagogues. They would show up, and in fact, this is how it's recorded. Acts 13, verse 14, when they were going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidia and Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, what does it look like in the synagogue? And then he says, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. The idea of preaching was fundamental to reading. You explain. And now we're in a day where, I mean, linguistically, geographically, culturally, philosophically, and historically, we live in a completely different time period. Good preaching helps you understand the text as the original recipients understood it and shows you how it applies. Good preaching or good teaching exposes the depth of the text and they show you how it truly applies to your life. It digs deep. And so that's what Timothy is to be doing. He says, I want you to not only be reading the scriptures, but make sure that you're exhorting and you're teaching. You ever read the, the book uh, Moby Dick okay, by uh, Herman Melville? And they've got that pastor there. I mean, this guy is awesome. He is Pastor Maple. He's at the Whaleman's Chapel in New Bedford. And if you, in fact, I think this, there's a movie on this. Uh, in fact, we've got a slide on there. His, this is his pulpit, okay? It's built like the prow of a ship because that's who his congregation is. In fact, he refers to them as, their ship, as his shipmates. And so what he would do when he would go and preach, he'd actually get up there. He'd climb up on a rope, the same kind of rope that if you were using like a small little boat to get to a ship, that rope would be extended. You'd climb up that ladder and that rope would be pulled in. He'd climb up into his pulpit and he'd pull that rope in. And, you know, he's going to teach them that you're going to face storms in life. Literally, because all these folks are sailors, and figuratively, as you're facing the storms of life, you need to know what God has to say about life, about death, about holiness, 
about integrity. That's what Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to do. I want you to make sure that you are building people's lives on the word of God. And frankly, the idea of going through books of the Bible is actually becoming so out of vogue, very few churches will even do it anymore. Because we're kind of in a mentality that you've got to keep it brief, little snapshots, and keep the people entertained. But God wants his people deep. He wants them mature. And transformation comes through his revelation. And so that's why Paul is advising and telling Timothy, this is what you must do. Let me give you a fourth trait of true Christian leadership. And that is, you're making maturity a priority. He says, beginning in verse 14, in these next two verses, he says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. This is pretty interesting. This is a negative imperative. And oftentimes in the Greek, this is, it's translated this way. Stop doing a particular action. It is very possible that Timothy had stopped investing himself and stopped developing the spiritual gift that he had been given. And so he says, Timothy, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. And he is saying, Timothy, make sure you do not neglect your personal development. And he's recounting an event that took place in his life, an event in which there was, this probably took place when he was living in uh, Lystra and Iconium, likely right about the time when Paul makes his second missionary journey. He shows up in there. Remember, they were speaking well of this young man, Timothy. He's about 20 years of age. His dad is a Greek, a non-believer. So dad is, is really of no a positive spiritual influence in his life. But he's got a mama and a grandmother that love the Lord. In fact, they've made heavy investments in him. Timothy apparently had a ministry, even as a young guy, that had a lot of influence in these two different towns among the Christians. There was an event in which God actually had one of his prophets actually speak and say, this man, Timothy, he's mine for pastoral ministry. And this was later than it was actually confirmed, and Paul is referencing this event. It was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance. That word bestowed uh, literally means like given through prophetic utterance. God gave you this gift. He actually did something that, that really only happened at the very beginning of the church where he actually had prophets actually speak and give revelation, of certainly pertinent to a local, a, a local a place or a church. And he says not only was it given to us by God, but even the laying hands by the presbytery or the board of elders, it was confirmed by a body of believers. Timothy, you cannot afford to neglect this gift. And when he's talking about spiritual gifts, he's talking about a God-designed blend of, of spiritual abilities meant to build up the saints. And he says, Timothy, you can't afford to neglect this. Now, this idea of laying on of hands this goes, its origins are, go all the way back to Moses. And when Moses transfers leadership of the people of Israel, God tells him specifically in Numbers chapter 27, this is how you do it. This is how I want it done. And he says, I literally want you to lay your hands on him. In the Hebrew, it has the idea of actually like pressing into him. Like there's weight to it. It's not just kind of, I'm touching you, but like literally like, like pressing into him. 
And from that, that was then a carried over tradition. Rabbis within the Jewish faith, when they were being established as rabbis, hands were pressed upon them. This same practice then was used to start ordaining particular men for a pastoral leadership. And that's exactly what his gifts were. He was a pastor. He was a teacher. And I can just tell you, this is an extremely powerful event. Now, God isn't using prophets. I don't believe that God is declaring his word through prophets. He is given a finished revelation with the book of Revelation. You only have to read the end of the book to know that. But he is still calling people to a specific ministry. All of you, if you're a Christian, you're in the ministry. It doesn't matter if you're a homemaker, you're a mechanic, wherever you might be working as a salesman, you are called to a particular ministry. But God does uniquely call some people to serve his people in the position of a pastor. And I was actually sent here from a church in Oregon. And, when I, and it was my ordination service, and all the elders of the church and pastors, they all, after they preached this service where I was commissioned to come to Fellowship Bible Church in Waco, Texas, a little church meeting in Hollywood Movie Theater number 13, to preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.2. And like the whole message was directed, you are to help people develop a strong understanding of who God is, to know him deeply and intimately. And after the service then, they had me come forward. And all of these folks, they, they gathered and they put their hands on me. It was so powerful. When that concluded, I could not help but to cry. And I'm not a crier. I mean, like, Poof. You know, like one of my friends said he was going to come up and, and tell me, man, congratulations. He says, man, I saw you. And I said, you need your space, man. So he just kind of stood back, you know. And no one approached me. I couldn't. I was standing right up there. I just, it was so powerful. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy. You cannot afford to give up and to pull out. It is tough. But you've been given a spiritual gift. And God has uniquely called you to this ministry. And let me tell you, if you're a Christian, You have been gifted spiritually. Every single person has a supernatural ability that is meant to be developed, that is used to bring development and health and edification to the body of believers. And and if you're like, whoa, what what are you talking about here? There's four different passages in the New Testament that talk about this. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. They actually talk about, it's not meant to be an exhaustive list, but rather suggestive of kind of the blends of gifts that God gives his people. And God is like a master artist, and he gives like just kind of different degrees of different gifts to all of his people for the purpose of the building up of the body for the exaltation of God. And so you're kind of like, well, what kind of gifts are these? I mean, like, are they money gifts? Are they gifts like Christmas where you open them up? Like, well... Well, let me tell you, they're, they're really in two major categories. In fact, Peter refers to them this. There are speaking gifts, gifts that are used for exhortation, whether that be singing or giving testimony. Uh, you can find people that are very gifted in evangelists. You know, that we're, that they've been given a gift that's been developed. But then there's also serving gifts, and this is widespread. And, and many people have gifts that they can serve behind the scenes. But all gifts are meant for the glory of God. So how do you identify your spiritual gifts? You're like, man, this is kind of new to me, or I'd be interested to know what my gifts are. How do you find out? Well, let me just tell you a very simple way. You have to, first of all, start serving. That means that you have to move from being a spectator to being involved. 
Christianity is not a spectator sport. Christianity is a body in motion. And if you refuse to be in motion, you refuse to serve, if it's just something you attend, like a ball game, you're like a part of the body that's not working well. In fact, you may not even function. So what you do is you start serving and you ask these three questions. First, you ask, what do I like to do? Okay, what sort of things has God given me a desire? Do you like to work with young children? Do you like to help others? Do you like to give devotionals? Do you like to speak? Do you like to sing? What are some things that God has given you that you like to do? Don't get the idea that, man, if God wants me to do it, I probably will hate it. No, you will probably like it. What is it that he is, what sort of desires do you have? The second question he asks is this, what do you do well? This is a really important question. What do you do well? Where do you see that, that actually, you actually have a difference, that this actually works? For instance, like, if you think that you would like to work with children and, uh, and you feel like, yeah, I think I'm gifted to do it, but children don't like you. And, and when you go in and they're like, and they're throwing their little toys at you and stuff like that, and you try to engage them, you're probably not gifted there. Or if, you're, if, you're, if you think, well, I'm a teacher, and you see this, like, oh, yeah, I'm a really gifted teacher. And by the way, there is no gift that is more important than another, okay? But the, the idea, oh, well, I'm a teacher. And people get this idea, but when you teach, no one listens. And they're bored, and they don't get it. And yet, you try to keep working at No, you have to find out what is it that you do well. Think of it this way. If you were or are a musician, what instrument do you play? I'm not talking one of the substitute teachers there at junior high band, where you may have tried other instruments. But what instrument do you play? You play the one that you're probably pretty good at, right? And you've made some investment in. Well, that is how it works in the body of Christ. And then the third question, after you ask the question, what I do well, ask, where, what is God blessing? Where do I see fruit? Where do I see that these gifts are coming into play? The body functions as God intended it when everybody is fully functioning. I just want you to know that. That is true here at Fellowship. If we're to be fully functional, that requires 100%. The whole 80-20 world, well, 20% of the people do 80% of the ministry, that cannot be a reality in the church. Praise God, it is not a reality at Fellowship. I mean, we've got people serving everywhere. A church our size, staff this small, and praise God, we have people that are mobilized for ministry because it's not about staff. It's about people who have a vision for the glory of Jesus. And they understand that they are called and equipped to the ministry. You know what a pastor's job is, don't you? My job description is very simple. It is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4.12. That's it. I equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And let me uh, tell you something. Your gifts have to be developed this is interesting, but some Christians think, and they, they understand that they've been gifted by God, and they think like this is this instantaneous, that they're going to be just super at whatever they do because they have this spiritual gift. No, the gift has to be developed. What God has given you is a capacity, but it must be developed. So, for instance, if you've been gifted as a teacher, there are going to be times where it, it becomes apparent that, wow, you have some abilities here, but you're not going to be a great communicator unless you really work hard and develop. You have to apply yourself, and God will give you the grace to do it. But if you're going to be a leader, you're going to serve well, 
anything that you're going to do well in your vocation, your calling, if you're going to do well, you must develop. God gives the gifts for the building up of his body, but you and I, we've got to develop those gifts. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. He says, I don't want you to neglect that spiritual gift that you have. You've got a spiritual gift. Don't neglect it. And notice what he says in verse 15. Take pains with these things. Did you see that? Literally, you're going to have to apply yourself where it might actually cost you something. Take pains with these things and be absorbed in them. Literally, be in them so that your progress will be evident to all. That is huge. I actually, I've got that underlined in my Bible. I hope I'm progressing as a pastor, as a follower of Christ. If I'm not, then we probably need to find another pastor. Because if you are to be involved in the ministry as Christ intended it, he wants you maturing and growing. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. You haven't arrived. Neither have I. What we have is we've got a vision of growing and maturing. And it's not, it's not like you, uh, you, you stop growing. This, when he talks about make your progress be evident to all, it was used to describe soldiers who go ahead of the troops. They clear the way of obstacles, and they set the path for the others. In our military, you know what we call these folks? Anybody know? In our military guys? Who are the people that do this? They're the pathfinders. That's right. The pathfinders. We just drop them in, in the middle of nowhere, enemy all around, they blaze the trail. Timothy, your progress must be evident to all. You've got to take pains with these things. Don't give up. And you might be, uh, let's say you're getting up there in age. Now is not the time to coast. You want to continue to develop. And maybe you feel like, I should be so much farther than I am right now. Let me, let me have you take a clue from the Apostle Paul. Don't get the idea that he had all, man, he had just arrived and he was just kind of coasting at the, at the level of perfection. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, he said, you remember, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal. You've got to keep moving. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. God wants to get your complete attention to say, it doesn't matter so much about the past. What matters is the present and where you're going in the future. I think that God is not caught up with our perfection because that actually happens when we enter into his presence. He is very concerned with our direction. Where are you going? It's interesting. Pastors, they can think that uh, you like studying the Bible. You know, it's like, I have so many other pastoral things that I should be doing and could be doing that I, I don't really have time to read the word. That's kind of like, you know, they, pastors don't have a problem when they go to a sports game and you see athletes out there and they've, they've pumped at iron, you know, and lifted weights and trained for hours and hours and hours. But you can become a pastor where you feel like, nah, man, I've got so many other things. And it is pressing. The tyranny of the urgent, man, it is, it's heavy. You can't move away from what you're called to do. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. I want you to make your progress be evident to all. And let me give you the obstacles to doing this. We've talked about them before, but I want them in front of you because I don't want you caught up by them. We call them the killer Ds. These are the obstacles that will keep you from progressing and maturing as a Christian. Distractions. 
being sidetracked with side issues. Another, discouragement. This is, man, life seems heavy, hopeless, and hard. You ever been discouraged? Every one of us has been discouraged. This has actually been somewhat of a discouraging week, especially early on for me. You can get discouraged where you kind of want to move into this next one where you start disengaging. Let me give you a fourth one. Disqualification, where you actually behave in such a way that your sin sidelines you for a time. And let me give you a fifth one. Depletion. It's the result of long-term overexertion devoid of rest and renewal. If you don't learn how to pace yourself, if you don't incorporate some sort of refreshment and rest in your life, then, then you are potentially going to face one of these killer D's, and it might own you. Paul says, Timothy, you've got to take pains with these things. You need to be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. And let me give you just finally the fifth trait of true Christian leadership. And that is this, that you are caring for your soul. Christian leaders understand that they minister as parents, as workers, as people in the church, as elders, as deacons, as pastors. They do so from position of strength of soul. That's why he writes this. Look at this. Pay close attention to yourself. You've got to pay close attention to what's going on in the inside, your personal life. You have to cultivate your own spiritual life. And then he says, not only do you pay close attention to yourself, he says, and to your teaching. And then he goes on to say something that's going to throw a lot of people off initially. And he says, persevere in these things, for as you do, you will ensure salvation both, both for yourself and for those who hear you. And you're like, what? <laughs> Wait a second here. You mean literally if he just kind of perseveres, that's going to ensure salvation for him and everybody else that's hearing him? Well, I don't think he's talking about salvation from sin here. What is he talking about? Well, if you remember from the chapter, from the very beginning of the chapter, he actually says, look at the thing, what he says. There are people that are creating great amounts of corruption. They are paying attention to deceitful spirits, verse 1, and doctrines of demons. They are by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from food. This sort of false teaching has a corruptive influence on a body of believers. And what Paul is telling him is like, you pay close attention to your soul. So those killer D's don't take you off the track. Pay close attention to your teaching because you're ensuring salvation from this kind of error for yourself and for your people. But let me tell you, it's going to be hard to rescue others if you yourself are drowning. So that is why the fifth trait of a true Christian leader is that, that you're learning to care for your soul. We're the, easy, we're the easiest person to neglect. It's interesting how self-centered we can be, and yet when it comes to our soul and our well-being, it's like, it's like we don't even think about it. And yet it is absolutely critical to your ministry. Gordon MacDonald writes about a time where him and his wife, Gail, were up in the Swiss Alps, and they were taking a hike through the high meadows there. And they noticed that they were in this high mountain grass there, that there's these guys, these farmers, and they, each one of them had a scythe in their hand. Scythe, you remember that like tool there? This is an ancient tool. There's, a, there's one, like one of those. Probably none of you are mowing your yard with one of those at this present time, okay? But they're highly effective. They've been around for ages. And they're like chopping down this grass. 
And they were watching these guys, but at first he kind of thought they might be lazy because about every 10 minutes they stopped working. I mean, okay. And he watched them. He said, like for an hour, they'd work 10 minutes, take five off, you know. Okay, that's 20 minutes of wasted time. And then they had this like rock or something, some flat stone or something. They'd rub it against his blade. And see, he, they got in closer and found out. And sure enough, uh, what they were doing is they're taking their scythe and they were sharpening that blade. They'd work for 10 minutes, sharpen the blade for five and they go back at it. You think they were wasting a lot of time, but they realized that cutting and sharpening are both part of a farmer's work. And looking at this, this became a living illustration for him for his life. And I want to I read to you what he wrote. He said, in my younger years, I didn't appreciate this cutting and sharpening principle. I'm embarrassed to admit that I usually gave attention to the sharpening or the spiritual dimension of my life only when I needed something beyond my natural reach or when I found myself knee-deep in trouble. Sound like anybody you know? You guys do that too? Okay. Okay, yeah, we all, right? And then he says, The cumulative results of a life lived like this became alarming. It led to dullness of the soul. While talking a lot about God, I had a very little practice in listening to him. I tended to become so bogged down in matters of secondary importance, neglecting truly important things. I often complained of fatigue. Not only physical fatigue, but spiritual and emotional emptiness. Sometimes I became flooded with temptations to envy, impatience, ambition, discontent, and wandering thoughts. You see, if we're going to minister well, we have to learn to care for our souls. You're going to have to find time for rest. You need to enjoy God in doing something that you enjoy. Find time to just read the scripture uninterrupted and without the TV on. Find a book that actually encourages your soul. Learn how to worship, not only on a Sunday morning, but find a time this week, just even take five minutes to worship God, or maybe just to be still in his presence. But caring for your soul is critical to leading well. And so, friends, it all comes down to this. Who are you following? Because who you follow will determine how you lead. And Christian leaders, we follow Jesus. He's our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this passage. I know how much I have needed it, and this has been a passage that has refreshed me for years, kept me focused on what is important. Lord, would you continue to have the full effect that you intended with your word uh, today as we looked at it closely? For those who are struggling and, and feeling even somewhat numb as they've gone through life. Would you breathe life into their soul through your spirit, through your word? And so we'd ask this, Lord, for your glory, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.